Welcome to the Unstoppable Yes You podcast, where we celebrate the achievements of Caribbean people to inspire the next generation. I'm your host, Curlis Philip, bringing you a brand new series that spotlight Caribbean authors. In this series, I'll introduce you to authors from across the diaspora who are bringing our stories and culture to the forefront. They will share helpful tips for those of you that are interested in learning what it takes to become an author, and you may even find a title or two that pique your interest. Today, I am speaking with Janice Lynn Matha. Janice is a Bahamian-Canadian author who currently resides in Vancouver, British Columbia. Her first novel, Learning to Breathe, was a 2018 Governor General's Award finalist and a British Columbia Book Prize finalist. Learning to Breathe also won the Joan F. Kewell Books Save Lives Award. Her second novel, Facing the Sun, is an Amy Mathers Teen Book Award recipient. She recently released her adult fiction debut on Certain Kin, a collection of short stories. Welcome. Thank you so much, Curlis. Such a pleasure to speak with you today. Tell us a little bit about you. Well, as you as you mentioned, I'm a Bahamian Canadian author and I adore books, love reading, I love writing. I've been writing since I was six and haven't stopped or looked back since. So who do you write for and how do you want your audience to feel when they're reading your novels? First and foremost, I honestly write for me. I think of myself as a young reader who didn't often see herself in the books that were available to me at the time. So first and foremost, I think of I think of me then and what I was missing. And I know that there are when I'm writing for teens, young young women, young men like me who need to see themselves, need, we need to be represented. So I think of I think of them and I think of me now as well and what is missing uh, and what I still struggle to make sense of and what I want to explore and understand more, what feeds me in books that I read and what I, I want to receive more of when I sit down and read. And that's so important. When you're writing, what comes first for you, the plot or the character? It's a really interesting question. And I think for me, sometimes what comes first is just a, a snippet. And that snippet might include something to do with the plot. It might include something to do with the character. But sometimes it's just a scene, an idea, a strange scenario, and a person in that scenario. And from there, the story can stretch out as I sit down and explore what what would someone do in that situation? How might someone feel? What might happen next? So sometimes it's uh, sometimes it's plot, sometimes it's character, and sometimes it's just a visual mishmash of both. And how much research goes into your process when you're writing? You know, it really varies from story to story. Some stories really aren't very research based. Everything that uh, I feel I need is is there simply from lived experience. But there are some that reference actual historical events or something that's happened in the more recent past. And for those, I do go back and make sure that I have uh, 
the story straight. But a lot of that is just for for inspiration because I do enjoy the flexibility of creating a town that is similar to a real life one, but not identical to it. Gives you a bit of flexibility. And you know how in the, in the Caribbean, at least I know in the Bahamas, and I feel that this is is true other places as well, small communities. So I would hate to make it too too close to home and have people knocking on my door complaining, why did you write about me? Come on. Yeah, that is so true. You made your publishing debut with Learning to Breathe, and that was a um, book about a pregnant teenager. So who was the main character based on? So in Learning to Breathe, the main character, Indy, is not really based on a specific person. When I'm writing, particularly because with Learning to Breathe, the main character is struggling with being in a situation where she's been sent away from her safe home with her grandmother on one of the smaller islands, the family islands, we call them. And she's been sent to live in Nassau in the city with an extended family member that she doesn't know very well. And someone in that household rapes her. And this is how she becomes pregnant. So the story of Indy is really the story of a young woman in a situation of the worst kind struggling to find refuge and safety when she often feels, and in reality, very little power. She's young. She doesn't have financial status. She's removed from the family members that have supported and cared for her properly in the past. And it's a situation that is definitely familiar. I think really all of us know someone who's been in this situation, know of someone who's been in this situation or maybe have been in this situation ourselves. And in writing about this really personal, intimate, painful topic, I wanted to be very careful not to actually base it on someone, not to tell someone else's story of pain. So Indy's character isn't based on a a particular person. It's more based on an experience, a social phenomenon, something that we all know goes on but that is, I think now, discussed more, but not has not always been discussed. And my observation, um, when I observe how situations of sexual abuse are discussed in the Bahamian community currently, there's not always the care, empathy, understanding, protection that should be coming from adults. So with Indy's story, I worked really hard to not really base her on a particular person, uh, to make her truly her, her own character, a new person that, that had been created, but one that we all know. Something you just said that resonates with me is that while people are talking more about it, you still find that there's a whole lot of victim blaming in this day and age. So. Yeah, I think the story is definitely relatable in that sense. Janice, I know your second novel, Facing the Sun, won um, a major award. Where did the idea for that story come from? Well, Facing the Sun has some base in some of my experiences, not all. One of the things that I took from my own life, my own experience in writing Facing the Sun was 
remembering my teen years and being one of this really close-knit group of four friends, each with our own family dynamics and family situations, family circumstances, and our own personal hopes and dreams and challenges and struggles. And we were very close. And at the same time, we all had things that we kept to ourselves, that we held dear, that we didn't talk about, that we sometimes didn't know how to talk about. Some of those things, um, I think we're only still sharing now, some, some years later. So I took that closeness and the, the sometimes complex dynamic of four different people coming together, living in the same space, having their own individual paths. Sometimes those paths weave together in little side friendships. Sometimes there's a bit of an antagonistic relationship as well. And the other part of Facing the Sun that I definitely took from my own experience growing up is the relationship that the girls in Facing the Sun have with the beach. So Facing the Sun is based in a, again, fictional part of Nassau, where there is a beach that is not a tourist beach. It's a more community beach. It's very down to earth. And it's a place that is and always has been a refuge for everyday people to just go chill, hang out, relax, play around, party. There's a church that is right on the beach that's very near and dear to Eve, one of the girls in this story. And then at a certain point in the story, the threat of development of this ordinary, almost humdrum little beach that everyone thought was safe, that was theirs, that was ours, that threat of development rises. And so I thought a lot about two beaches that were important to me growing up in the Bahamas. One is East Beach that's at uh, at the end of one of the fairly long stretches of road that runs out to the far eastern part of Nassau. And that beach, like the one in this story, is not one that's ever been developed. It doesn't I seem to have the space for it. So in that way, it's safe. And it's a place that I have often gone and just relaxed after a tedious day of work or a long day after school. I've been there with friends, with family members. And then I also think about another beach, the the tourist beach that's on Paradise Island Cabbage Beach. It's the beach that, just for context, the Atlantis Resort is on. Well, the thing with Cabbage Beach is that there was a time when I was in my teens where the relatively open access that had always existed was suddenly taken away for locals. And it became, for a period of time, someplace that you could only access if you were staying in the hotel or staying in one of the private beachside cottages, which obviously is not true for the vast majority of the population. And so I, 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 it was such a feeling of going with your family on a holiday weekend just for the day and you would have packed up your little picnic lunch and toted your towels from the parking lot 
a few minutes walk away and up he went up the little hill and then there was the fence waiting waiting to greet you and keep you out so I thought about that relationship as well um and the reality that I think is is true from what I've experienced throughout the Caribbean where there's there's an attitude and a perception that you live in paradise and all you do is lie by the water and sit daiquiris all day. Uh, oh, if only that were true, but that, that isn't, that isn't the case. Um, and the beaches that are often associated so strongly with the region and certainly with the, with the country, with the Bahamas are not always accessible. They're not always in reach. And sometimes under threat of being taken away or are taken away. So what happens and what happens in particular when you're a young person and you don't feel like you have much power, you're not even old enough to vote. So you can't even express your ire in that way. So those were some of the things that I I went back to and thought about a lot when I was writing Facing the Sun. Your first adult novel, Uncertain Kin, is a pivot from um, what you've typically done. So what made you decide to pivot from more of a high school audience to a young adult audience? Yeah, so it's actually one of those happy coincidences of the writing and the publishing journey and the order in which different stories, different books were able to find a home. And it's turned out that it's easier to publish a novel first and then bring in short stories than it is to establish establish yourself with short stories initially. So I would say I've actually been writing short stories that were intended for an older audience since I was a teen. So the bones of some of the stories in Uncertain Kin, I think, came together probably when I was in my early 20s for one or one or two of those stories. So it really just worked out that Learning to Breathe was a story that I was able to publish first. And I was fortunate to have a two book deal. So Facing the Sun um, was the book that I wanted to to bring out for that purpose. And having brought those two stories out into the world, I was really eager to bring out the short stories that I had been, you know, pitching and sending out to, um, to agents and trying to find some representation for, for years. And I was able to find a, find an editor that was interested in reading the manuscript and in ultimately working, working together with me and, uh, I was able to get Uncertain Kin published. So it was really just chance. It could just as easily have been Uncertain Kin first and learning to breathe after. Got it. Is there a particular story in the collection that resonates with you the most? I have a few favorites, but I think (laughs) the story that I think about and the characters in that story that I probably think about and come back to the most in Uncertain Kin would be the story of Mango Summer. So Mango Summer is the story of really a community, but it's told from the point of view of one girl. And it's set in a very almost obscenely 
lush summer where there's a grotesque surplus of mangoes just everywhere. They can't get rid of these mangoes. People are leaving them on doorsteps and tiptoeing away. Like, just take these things and get away. And then something happens and girls start to disappear. Little girls start to disappear from outside their homes, from their beds in the middle of the night. And the main character in Mango Summer has her little sister taken in the middle of the night from the bed that they're sleeping in together. They go to sleep together and she wakes up alone. And this story is one that's very close to me because I remember a time in the the very early 2000s, there were a series of boys from between the ages of, I believe, eight and 11, maybe it may have been slightly older, that were, that disappeared, that vanished. This was in the Bahamas. This was on, this was not in Nassau, um, where Nassau being the city does, like most cities, have um, much more crime. This was in the second city of Grand Bahama, um, or Freeport is really the second city, but this was on the island of Grand Bahama. It was unprecedented to have something like this take place on the island of Grand Bahama. And just the magnitude of the number, sheer number of children that were disappearing. Uh, I was not as young at the time, but I was still fairly young and I was working at a newspaper at the time. And so it was the first time in my life that I'd really been immersed in the goings on of the country and paid such close attention um, and being quite that near. I, I didn't work on that particular story, but friends of mine at the newspaper did. And so I would be in the newsroom when they would come back from one of these horrific press conferences where there was really no information. And eventually there were answers, but it was years before families found out what had happened. So Mango Summer was written really as a way to try and understand the incomprehensible. And I think when there, when there are tragedies that take place, I've observed that there's a great tendency for us as, as people, as members of a community, to say, I just can't imagine it. It's just unthinkable. I can't imagine. And at the same time, there are people that live right next door to us that don't have to imagine. They are living. And I think that we can imagine. And I think that that is one of the jobs I see for myself as a writer, to dare to imagine those things that you don't want to imagine, to try and understand, to try and, and think it's the act of putting yourself in those shoes that no one wants to wear and walking around a bit. Yeah, I mean, that just blows my mind that, you know, so many young people would be taken on such a small island. It's just not something that you hear of. It, it isn't. And since that time, there definitely have been, um, I would say, isolated cases of a child missing. And every time it, it is tragic. And that time, it was just just the, the terror 
like the it, it wouldn't stop it wouldn't stop it was like a, a terrible tragedy built on another terrible tragedy built on another and another and it it really was unlike anything that i had experienced and unlike anything that i've seen in in the bahamas since that time yeah i don't think i've ever heard of a story like that across the caribbean even very sad in on certain kin, there's some reoccurring characters that have kind of crept up in in the stories. Um, are you deliberately trying to build a body of work with those connections? Well, I wouldn't say that I would expect necessarily any of the characters in Uncertain Kin to appear in the future. I kind of feel like once a, once a book is done, those characters are there. You go off. You all go into the world. Um, so I do kind of feel like their their world is is complete or if not complete they're operating as as they need to and they continue to grow and develop with readers but it unfolded in uncertain kin uh reading through it when it came to the revising stage of things that it emerged that some of these characters were quite without my intending to coming up again and again it was pointed out that Certain names appeared more than once, and I thought, "Oh, I really better go through the uh, go through the uh, the the white pages a little more industriously to make sure I'm broadening the names that I'm drawing on." But I think that it just it it unfolded um, quite authentically that some characters did reappear, and it felt important in this particular story because it is a story of family connections and in family. There, there are these shared experiences and also the reality that if you ask one family member, well, what happened in this situation? How did that really go down? They'll give you an answer. And if you ask someone else, they'll be like, well, not, not quite so. So I felt that it was important to lean into that, those recurring, those reoccurring characters and that phenomenon of encountering someone at different stages of life. So there are some characters that we see as a very young teenager, and then she comes back again as a grandmother, or we see someone as a very small girl witnessing a particularly difficult situation. And then we see her as an adult, and she's not always a very soft adult. The sort of person that I would tend to form a swift judgment on when I, when I meet her in, in real life, but it gave me a chance to think about where where do we come from? How do different kinds of people, different personalities, different modes of being in the world, where does that come from? How does it unfold? How does it evolve? Because nothing comes from nothing. Absolutely. And, you know, the person you are as a child and the experiences that you have can completely change your persona as an adult. What are some of the other main themes that came out of Uncertain Kin? There, one, of, one of the themes that I found really interesting to explore is the, the connections between girls and women. And there is a theme of looking at the way that women, girls interact with each other, especially an older, an older woman interacting with a young girl. Um, and that was something that I wanted to write about and think about because I've noticed looping back a bit to when we discussed a bit earlier, 
the victim blaming that we witness when it comes to a young girl that's been raped, that's been sexually abused. And that particular phenomenon and mode of being is something that I've seen so many times, either the, the fear that, um, either, either a young woman, a teen, a young teen being viewed as a threat that is to be feared when you think, well, do you, you remembering that this is, this is a minor. She was in single digits like three years ago. Um, but now she is somehow to blame for daring to grow breasts and develop into start to develop into a very young woman. So I wanted to think about that, spend time with that. And again, to try and understand what makes a woman behave so antagonistically towards what is in some ways essentially a younger version of herself. Why do we treat ourselves this way? And why do we treat those that we should be caring for in these ways? One thing that I also wanted to explore is that things are not always exactly the same way. So in writing about the those dynamics between generations of girls and women, I did want to look at the other side of things where there is a support and understanding where a harmful or painful pattern is broken. So in one of the stories, the main character in the story, Glory, we see her as a young pregnant teen and her grandmother is horrified and shocked and appalled. And through the story, I don't want to give too much away, but through the story that that young girl learn some things about her grandmother's past that makes her think, hmm, surprised that you don't understand and relate to me a bit more than you seem to. And then we get to see that that young girl later on as a as a grandmother. Uh, we see her as the grandmother of a of a young woman who has a very different relationship with her grandmother. That that older that that young young girl that we saw, Priscilla is her name. So we see Priscilla older and Priscilla is able to be a different kind of grandmother and she's able to comfort and reassure and bolster her granddaughter in a very different way. As you think about your journey as an author, what would you say are some of the lessons that you learned along the way? The biggest lesson that comes to mind is just determination and perseverance. So the, I think anyone who's an aspiring writer has probably heard that you're going to expect to get some rejection uh, over time. And I, I definitely experienced a lengthy road of continuously trying to get my work out there, trying to find a home for it, trying to find someone to read it, trying to find someone to represent it. And I would say, I would encourage anyone who is a writer and wants to become a published writer don't be discouraged by that. This is normal. This is standard. And I would say that there are more avenues now for us to have our stories told, for us to tell our stories, for us to publish our stories ourselves if we choose, or to find a publisher. Those avenues are only growing. 
So do not be discouraged. Continue sending out, continue knocking on doors. Uh, and also, you know, really just the value of doing my research of, of looking at all possible avenues. For me, I got my start in publishing by entering a contest for unpublished writers. So while I, I did not win the contest, but I was one of the, the three entries that was shortlisted. And so I received representation, you know, an offer of representation by my literary agent coming out of that context. So not only being uh, determined and just continuing to push, but look for other avenues, look for those uh, untapped avenues. And the other lesson is also being able to filter through constructive criticism effectively it is easy to be quite discouraged when you know you have a perhaps an agent telling you i i don't really think there's an audience for this that sort of thing i think you can safely discard just keep keep going but one of the best things that ever happened to me was for learning to breathe there was an agent who definitely showed some interest in the manuscript and read a an entry and she gave me a couple of pieces of feedback one of which was just that she she noted that she felt the main character Indy she felt that Indy's situation was so difficult and so relenting in that version of the story that she read that it was hard for her to continue going and I took it very personally I was upset I <laughs> I had strong feelings about it and I sulked for a couple of weeks and then I was like mm, she might have a point and I went back into the story and I didn't change the story for this agent, but I was able to see in her criticism where she actually did have a point. And ultimately the changes that I made allowed the story to be stronger. And I think helped along my uh, path to ultimately getting the, the story published. And that's all great advice. It's good that you were able to you know, kind of step outside of sort of your deep personal connection, right, to this body of work and really kind of try to be objective in how you, um, you know, processed her criticism. Janice, what does literary success look like for you? I think for me, literary success is, first of all, me writing something that I'm pleased with. I think one of one of the biggest highlights I've experienced is recently I had a virtual visit with a a class of university writing students and one of the students in that class mentioned that she works in education field and the students she works with are are young teens and she mentioned to her class of young teens that she was having a, her class was having a visit with me and her young teen students were really excited and were familiar with the YA novels that I've written. And that was such a, such a thrill because it's, it's always really wonderful, really meaningful to get great coverage, to receive awards and award nominations as well. But I know teens are ruthless. <laughs> They're not going to lie to spare your failing feelings or spare your, your face. So it was, it just meant so much to know that, uh, ah, yes. When I think that really for me, the, that measure of success is knowing who you're writing for and hearing back 
from that audience, whether it's teens for learning to breathe or facing the sun, or whether it's adults for uncertain kin, hearing back that readers connected with the story and the characters, that they took something away. And I think most of all that they felt heard and understood in the story and sometimes challenged in the stories. That for me is the biggest marker that I have, I have done what I set out to do. Good stuff. So complete this sentence for me. I feel unstoppable when? I feel unstoppable when I sit down to write. Anything is possible. I can go anywhere. I can move around through time. I can spend time with people I've never met and imagine worlds that I've never been to. I can explore history and I can write wrongs. And that's powerful. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your stories with us. Where can our listeners stay connected with you so that they keep a pulse of any new stuff that comes out and also purchase your books? Right. So if for, for listeners in Canada, you can find all three books at any any of your favorite booksellers your indie bookstores can order and bring them in and uh, chapters indigo carries them as well you can find them on amazon you can also listen to the uh the audiobook for uncertain kin on kobo that one is um brand new and I'm especially excited because Uncertain Kin's audiobook is read by one of my lifetime long best friends, Catherine Archer. So that book was read and recorded in the Bahamas, which I'm really excited about. Um, all three books you can find on audiobook. You can find them easily on Amazon. Um, you can find them on audiobook. You can find them as ebooks and you can find them as for Facing the Sun and Learning to Breathe, you can find them as hardcover and as paperback as well. Awesome. To our Unstoppable Yes You Tribe, thank you for your continued support. And don't forget to check out more stories about Caribbean impact makers, rising stars, and trailblazers at unstoppableyesyou.com. <laughs>